This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Kim Zuckert, Tales of the Brass Hedgehog, Hedgehog.net. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster, Part 1. Stonegate, Worcester, Massachusetts, December 27th. Dear Judy, your letter is here. I have read it twice, and with amazement. Do I understand that Jervis has given you for a Christmas present the making over of the John Greer home into a model institution, and that you have chosen me to disburse the money? Me? I? Sally McBride? The head of an orphan asylum? My poor people, have you lost your senses? Or have you become addicted to the use of opium? And is this the raving of two fevered imaginations? I am exactly as well fitted to take care of one hundred children as to become the curator of a zoo. And you offer as bait an interesting Scotch doctor? My dear Judy, likewise my dear Jervis, I see through you. I know exactly the kind of family conference that has been held about the Pendleton fireside. "'Isn't it a pity that Sally hasn't amounted to more since she left college? "'She ought to be doing something useful instead of frittering her time away in the petty social life of Worcester. "'Also,' Jervis speaks, "'she is getting interested in that confounded young Halleck, "'too good-looking and fascinating and erratic. "'I never did like politicians. "'We must deflect her mind with some uplifting and absorbing occupation until the danger is past. "'Ha! I have it. We will put her in charge of the John Greer home.' Oh, I can hear him as clearly as if I were there. On the occasion of my last visit in your delectable household, Jervis and I had a very solemn conversation in regard to, one, marriage, two, the low ideals of politicians, three, the frivolous, useless lives that society women lead. Please tell your moral husband that I took his words deeply to heart, and that ever since my return to Worcester I have been spending one afternoon a week reading poetry with the inmates of the female inebriate asylum. My life is not as purposeless as it appears. Also let me assure you that the politician is not dangerously imminent, and that anyway he is a very desirable politician, even though his views on tariff and single tax and trade unionism do not exactly coincide with Jervis's. Your desire to dedicate my life to the public good is very sweet, but you should look at it from the asylum's point of view. Have you no pity for those poor defenseless little orphan children? I have, if you haven't, and I respectfully decline the position which you offer. I shall be charmed, however, to accept your invitation to visit you in New York, though I must acknowledge that I am not very excited over the list of gaieties you have planned. Please substitute for the New York Orphanage and the Foundling Hospital a few theaters and operas and a dinner or so. I have two new evening gowns and a blue and gold coat with a white fur collar. I dash to pack them, so telegraph fast if you don't wish to see me for myself alone, but only as a successor to Mrs. Lippett. Yours as ever, entirely frivolous and intending to remain so, Sally McBride. P.S. Your invitation is especially seasonable. A charming young politician named Gordon Halleck is to be in New York next week. I am sure you will like him when you get to know him better. P.S. 2. Sally taking her afternoon walk as Judy would like to see her. I ask you, have you both gone mad? The John Greer Home, February 15th. Dear Judy, we arrived in a snowstorm at eleven last night, Singapore and Jane and I. It does not appear to be customary for superintendents of orphan asylums to bring with them personal maids and Chinese chows. The night watchman and housekeeper who had waited up to receive me were thrown into an awful flutter. 
They had never seen the like of Sing, and thought that I was introducing a wolf into the fold. I reassured them as to his dogginess, and the watchman, after studying his black tongue, ventured a witticism. He wanted to know if I fed him on huckleberry pie. It was difficult to find accommodations for my family. Poor Sing was dragged off whimpering to a strange woodshed, and given a piece of burlap. Jane did not fare much better. There was not an extra bed in the building, barring a five-foot crib in the hospital room. She, as you know, approaches six. We tucked her in, and she spent the night folded up like a jackknife. She has limped about today, looking like a decrepit letter S, openly deploring this latest escapade on the part of her flighty mistress, and longing for the time when we shall come to our senses and return to the parental fireside in Worcester. I know that she is going to spoil all my chances of being popular with the rest of the staff. Having her here is the silliest idea that was ever conceived, but you know my family. I fought their objections step by step, but they made their last stand on Jane. If I brought her along to see that I ate nourishing food and didn't stay up all night, I might come temporarily, but if I refused to bring her, oh, dear me, I am not sure that I was ever again to cross the threshold of Stone Gate. So here we are, and neither of us very welcome, I'm afraid. I woke by a gong at six this morning, and lay for a time listening to the racket the twenty-five little girls made in the lavatory over my head. It appears that they do not get baths, just face washes, but they make as much splashing as twenty-five puppies in a pool. I rose and dressed and explored a bit. You are wise in not having me come to look the place over before I engaged. While my little charges were at breakfast, it seemed a happy time to introduce myself, so I sought the dining-room. Horror piled on horror, those bare drab walls and oilcloth-covered tables with tin cups and plates and wooden benches, and by way of decoration that one illuminated text, the Lord will provide. The trustee who added that last touch must possess a grim sense of humor. Really, Judy, I never knew there was any spot in the world so entirely ugly— when I saw those rows and rows of pale, listless, blue-uniformed children, the whole dismal business suddenly struck me with such a shock that I almost collapsed. It seemed like an unachievable goal for one person to bring sunshine to one hundred little faces, when what they need is a mother apiece. I plunged into this thing lightly enough, partly because you were too persuasive, and, and mostly, I honestly think, because that scurrilous Gordon Halleck laughed so uproariously at the idea of my being able to manage an asylum. Between you all— you hypnotized me. And then, of course, after I began reading up on the subject and visiting all those seventeen institutions, I got excited over orphans and wanted to put my own ideas into practice. But now I'm aghast at finding myself here. It's such a stupendous undertaking. The future health and happiness of a hundred human beings lie in my hands, to say nothing of their three or four hundred children and thousand grandchildren. The thing's geometrically progressive. It's awful. Who am I to undertake this job? Look, oh, look, for another superintendent. Jane says dinner's ready. Having eaten two of your institution meals, the thought of another doesn't excite me. Later. The staff had mutton hash and spinach with tapioca pudding for dessert. What the children had, I hate to consider. I started to tell you about my first official speech at breakfast this morning. It dealt with all the wonderful new changes that are to come to the John Greer home through the generosity of Mr. Jervis Pendleton, the president of our board of trustees, and of Mrs. Pendleton, the dear Aunt Judy of every little boy and girl here. 
Please don't object to my featuring the Pendleton family so prominently. I did it for political reasons. As the entire working staff of the institution was present, I thought it a good opportunity to emphasize the fact that all of these upsetting innovations come straight from headquarters and not out of my excitable brain. The children stopped eating and stared. The conspicuous color of my hair and the frivolous tilt of my nose are evidently new attributes in a superintendent. My colleagues also showed plainly that they consider me too young and too inexperienced to be set in authority. I haven't seen Jervis's wonderful Scotch doctor yet, but I assure you that he will have to be very wonderful to make up for the rest of these people, especially the kindergarten teacher. Miss Nath and I clashed early on the subject of fresh air, but I intend to get rid of this dreadful institutional smell if I freeze every child into a little ice statue. This being a sunny, sparkling, snowy afternoon, I ordered that dungeon of a playroom closed and the children out of doors. "'She's chasing us out,' I heard one small urchin grumbling as he struggled into a two-years-too-small overcoat. They simply stood about the yard, all humped in their clothes, waiting patiently to be allowed to come back in. No running or shouting or coasting or snowballs. Think of it. These children don't know how to play.' Still later. "'I have already begun the congenial task of spending your money. I bought eleven hot-water bottles this afternoon, every one that the village drugstore contained, likewise some woolen blankets and padded quilts, and the windows are wide open in the baby's dormitory. Those poor little tots are going to enjoy the perfectly new sensation of being able to breathe at night. There are a million things I want to grumble about, but it's half-past ten, and Jane says I must go to bed. Yours in command, Sally McBride.' P.S. Before turning in, I tiptoed through the corridor to make sure that all was right, and what do you think I found? Miss Snaith softly closing the windows in the baby's dormitory. Just as soon as I can find a suitable position for her in an old lady's home, I'm going to discharge that woman. Jane takes the pen from my hand. Good night. The John Greer Home, February 20th. Dear Judy, Dr. Robin McRae called this afternoon to make the acquaintance of the new superintendent. Please invite him to dinner upon the occasion of his next visit to New York, and see for yourself what your husband has done. Jervis grossly misrepresented the facts when he led me to believe that one of the chief advantages of my position would be the daily intercourse with a man of Dr. McRae's polish and brilliancy and scholarliness and charm. He is tall and thinnish, with sandy hair and cold gray eyes. During the hour he spent in my society, and I was very sprightly, no shadow of a smile so much as lightened the straight line of his mouth. Can a shadow lighten? Maybe not. But anyway, what is the matter with the man? Has he committed some remorseful crime, or is his taciturnity due merely to his natural scotchness? He is as companionable as a granite tombstone. Incidentally, our doctor didn't like me any more than I liked him. He thinks I am frivolous and inconsequential, and totally unfitted for this position of trust. I dare say Jervis has had a letter from him by now asking to have me removed." In the matter of conversation, we didn't hit it off in the least. He discussed broadly and philosophically the evils of institutional care for dependent children, while I lightly deplored the unbecoming coiffure that prevails amongst our girls. To prove my point, I had in Sadie Kate, my special errand orphan. Her hair is strained back as tightly as though it had been done with a monkey wrench, and is braided behind into two wiry little pigtails. Decidedly, orphans' ears need to be softened. But Dr. Robert McRae doesn't give a hang whether their ears are becoming or not. What he cares about is their stomachs. We also split upon the subject of red petticoats. I don't see how any little girl can preserve any self-respect when dressed in a red flannel petticoat an irregular inch longer than a blue checked gingham dress. But he thinks that red petticoats are cheerful and warm and hygienic. I foresee a warlike reign for the new superintendent. 
In regard to the doctor, there is just one detail to be thankful for. He is almost as new as I am, and he cannot instruct me in the traditions of the asylum. I don't believe I could have worked with the old doctor, who, judging from the specimens of his art that he left behind, knew as much about babies as a veterinary surgeon. In the matter of asylum etiquette, the entire staff has undertaken my education. Even the cook this morning told me firmly that the John Greer home has cornmeal mush on Wednesday nights. Are you searching hard for another superintendent? I'll stay until she comes, but please find her fast. Yours with my mind made up, Sally McBride. Superintendent's Office, John Greer Home, February 27th. Dear Gordon, are you still insulted because I wouldn't take your advice? Don't you know that a reddish-haired person of Irish forebears with a dash of scotch can't be driven but must be gently led? Had you been less obnoxiously insistent, I should have listened sweetly and been saved. As it is, I frankly confess that I've spent the last five days in repenting our quarrel. You were right, and I was wrong, and as you see, I handsomely acknowledge it. If I ever emerge from this present predicament, I shall in the future be guided almost always by your judgment. Could any woman make a more sweeping retraction than that? The romantic glamour which Judy cast over this orphan asylum exists only in her poetic imagination. The place is awful. Words can't tell you how dreary and dismal and smelly it is. Long corridors, bare walls, blue uniform, doe-faced little inmates that have the slightest resemblance to human children. And, oh, the dreadful institutional smell! A mingling of wet, scrubbed floors, unaired rooms, and food for a hundred people always steaming on the stove. The asylum not only has to be made over, but every child as well, and it's too Herculean a task for such a selfish, luxurious, and lazy person as Sally McBride ever to have undertaken. I am resigning the very first moment that Judy can find a suitable successor, but that, I fear, will not be immediately. She's gone off south, leaving me stranded, and, of course, after having promised, I can't simply abandon her asylum. But in the meantime, I assure you that I am homesick. Write me a cheering letter, and send a flower to brighten my private drawing-room. I inherited it furnished from Mrs. Lippett. The wall is covered with a tapestry paper in brown and red. The furniture is electric blue plush, except the center table, which is gilt. Green predominates in the carpet. If you presented some pink rosebuds, they would complete the color scheme. I really was obnoxious that last evening, but you are avenged. Remorsefully yours, Sally McBride. P.S. You needn't have been so grumpy about the Scotch doctor. The man is everything doer that the word Scotch implies. I detest him on sight, and he detests me. Oh, we are going to have a sweet time working together. End of Part 1